I believe for the time and moment of history that we are living in right now, Ephesians is not only timely and relevant, but it's specific, it is necessary, and it's needed. And so that's what we're going to be digging into. Authors of the Tyndale Concise Bible Dictionary, Bible Commentary, sum up the book of Ephesians brilliantly as they write this. Ephesians does not present the severe problems found in books like Romans and, and 1 Corinthians, but it does deal with the critical problems for the Christian life. It is a book designed for those with a need for a deeper and more consistent fellowship with God and his people. Paul's desires for the Christians at Ephesus, that they might have wisdom and intimate knowledge of God, this reveals the weaknesses he was seeking to correct by this letter. The readers needed to learn more of the racial unity brought through Christ. This is in chapters 2, verses 11 to 18, and chapter 3, verses 4 to 10, and we're going to be dealing with this issue um, very, very uh, profoundly and, and, and very, very straightforward in, in the coming weeks. They needed to provide a more settled place for Christ in their hearts. They needed to learn how to cope with suffering without losing heart. They needed to discern truth from error concerning a walk that would please God, and they needed to understand where strength for the struggle with the flesh is found. All these problems are summed up in Paul's first great prayer at the beginning of this book that their hearts would become more enlightened about God's salvation. They needed their inner darkness changed to light. Come on, we talked about that this morning already. The light will only come as the believers wake up and let Christ shine on them. And throughout the letter, Paul sought to bring to fruition his prayer for the enlightenment of the Ephesians and for all believers generally. And it will be these and many other topics that we're going to work through over the next 12-week journey through the book of Ephesians, taking us into June. And I want to encourage you, like I said, grab a notebook, create a new folder on your phone, be here, all right? And, uh, and we're going to dig into some, I think, really important, um, some very powerful, personal, and practical things that all of us need that are contained right here in Ephesians. And as well, I want to encourage you to invite a friend. Like all of our series around here, these are relevant and, and specific to, to all of us, no matter where we're at in life. And there's going to be some really cool things in here that I, I can guarantee you that uh, your neighbors and your coworkers and people you go to school with and everything like that uh, will benefit from. So with that being said, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22 is where we're going to land today, where we're going to begin today. And this is going to be our text for this morning. And it says this, Paul the Apostle writing. He says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Remember shout cornerstone? In him the whole building, not just part of the building, not just some of the building, not just a third of the building, not just portions of the building, not just small little tiny bits and pieces of the building. The whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being put together, built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. So this morning as we begin our series, Citizens and Saints, I want to speak to you from the subject, Placing a Cornerstone. Placing a cornerstone as we look at building our life on Christ and what happens to our lives as we do. Will you pray with me just one more time this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive and it's active and it's powerful. has the ability to transform us from the inside out. God, I thank you for this beautiful church. Not the four walls, not the stuff and the things, but the people that make this church up. God, I thank you that we could be in a million and one other places today, this afternoon. But we chose to be here in your house to give you praise and honor, to worship you, to experience your presence, and to know your grace. I pray this morning that as we gaze upon your word, that you would teach us, that you would guide us, you would strengthen us, you would challenge us, you would change us, you would inspire us to step into everything that you have for us, God. We love you, and we worship you in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, and everybody shouted. Amen. Amen. So I've spent some time over the past little while studying uh, ancient architecture, 
and uh, it's fascinated uh, me while I've been in study. The thing about architecture is I love it in general. I will just randomly, for fun, um, gaze at buildings, like look at buildings and get on real estate, um, like looking at commercial buildings and everything like that. That's like my thing, and I love architecture, and, and uh, I like building Legos and, um, you know, things like that. Not like nerd out build Legos, but with my son. Like there's a, there's a line that I draw. <laughs> I don't have like, you know, <laughs> the Death Star in my basement, all right? So, um, and if you do, that's great. Invite me over because I actually want to help you build it. That's cool. Um, <laughs> So I love architecture, I love building things, and I'll, I'll uh, go downstairs and I'll build Legos with my son. And, uh, and like everything about me as a father, I want to be like the good dad, right? I want to be a good dad, and I always want to feel like I'm teaching my son, you know what I mean? Like I want to be the Robert Redford of dads. And so, um, and so I'll be downstairs, and, and my boy always like gives me props when I'm building Legos with him. He'd be like, Dad, how did you build that? That's so awesome. And I'm like, it's a box. And so... Um, <laughs> So I'll teach him how to like do these cars, and I'll be building these things with him. He's like, Dad, that's so awesome. Like, how do you, how do you build this? So uh, a couple months ago, I was uh, with him, and we were building. A couple weeks, a couple months ago, and we were downstairs, and we were building. And, and he asked me, how do you do that? And so I was like, okay, I'm going to teach him how to build this, this thing. And it wasn't even instructions. We're just like creatively building, right? And I said, well, son, you got to fir- first start with like one piece that you know is going to anchor the entirety of this thing that you're trying to build. Whether that's a flat piece or one of the squares or a box that you're trying to build, like whatever it may be. Like if you're trying to buy, build a car, you need to have like the bottom section and, and that way you can attach the wheels. And so I'm trying to teach him this thing. And then I'm getting ready to study for this, this series in Ephesians. And all of a sudden we get to Ephesians chapter 2 and Many scholars and theologians would agree with this statement that chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, is the foundation of this entire letter because of this one word, cornerstone. One word, cornerstone. Now, I'm going to have these guys put up a picture, and it's a hard picture to see, but I'm going to try to walk it out for you. You guys can see it up there. Maybe they can dim the lights a little bit more on stage. But right here is a picture of a cornerstone in an ancient building. You can see the walls that, and the smaller stones that have been placed around it on each side. And this centerpiece, this big massive stone, is what they would call the cornerstone. And this stone was actually ceremonial in nature. It was, it was vital and it was important because as they would build these buildings, and Paul, especially speaking to the Ephesians, having the buildings that they were around and the location and, and in the culture they were in, they understood this terminology. You and I don't understand cornerstone so much because, well, if there's a big gigantic stone in our backyard, we just get a bulldozer and move it, right? But stones were really important to these guys because they understood this principle right here. The cornerstone was what the entirety of the building would be founded upon. And so they would take this big gigantic stone and they would celebrate it and then they would, they would embark upon building this, this building and they would place this stone and this stone would be center and all the walls would be around it. It would bring alignment, it would bring correction, it would make sure that everything was balanced. This stone was vital. And Paul's encouragement to every single one of us, to the Ephesians, is this. Christ must be your cornerstone. That you cannot build your life off of anything else but the right cornerstone. And when he is set in the right place, then everything outflows from that. Everything can be built appropriately. And come on, if we can have just like a therapy session, how many of you would agree with me? We've built our lives or tend to build our lives on some things that aren't worthy of being the cornerstone. (laughs) They're not strong enough. They're not stable enough. They're not powerful 
enough. And that's why Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16 is written. Because it, it highlights the power of this when it says this. God said, look, I have laid a stone in Zion. A tested stone. A precious cornerstone. A sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. I love that. That you and I can literally have lives that are unshakable. Shakeable. That doesn't mean that we don't face things. That doesn't mean that stuff doesn't come at us. It doesn't mean that the winds and the, and, and the waves don't come crashing against us. But what it does mean is in the midst of everything that you and I are going to face in life, we have a cornerstone, a sure stone, a tested stone, a foundation that is unshakable. One author describes cornerstones this way. In the ancient world, the cornerstone was the most important stone in the building. It set the level, angle, and outer dimensions of the building. It had to be level and squared, true vertical, so that all the other stones could be set from it. If it were not level, then the walls of the building that were erected, they would lean and they would fall. The Bible's presenting us with this very important truth. Paul, in Ephesians, is presenting us this very important truth. That Christ, the cornerstone, will always prevail. That Christ, the cornerstone, will always be our strength. Christ, the cornerstone, gives us everything that we need in order to walk through life. I wonder if he's your cornerstone today. <laughs> I wonder what the building of our life has been founded upon. Has it been founded upon your own gifts, your own talents, your financial stability, your, your job, your, your ideas, your... Fill in the blanks. Is your cornerstone, is your foundation, does it come down to the things that you desire to do, your ambitions? Does, what is it? What's your cornerstone? And I know for many of us, we lay cornerstones in our life as foundations, and then we get into life and we quickly realize, man, I probably shouldn't have laid my life upon that thing. <laughs> I watch so many people, they lay their life upon relationships and the things that they can, the corporate ladder that they can scale. I don't know what your cornerstone is, but this morning, here's, my, here's the task in front of us. The task in front of us is if, if, if necessary, we need to rebuild our lives. We need to place a sure cornerstone. We need to make Christ the cornerstone of our life, and everything else builds around that. And the cool thing is, is in this vein, in this piece of scripture that we just read, Paul highlights four important truths to the Ephesians and to us that will highlight this truth and frame the entirety of this letter and more importantly frame our lives. These truths are essential if we're going to live out everything that Paul will deal with in this letter. So here's the point. As, as our cornerstone, if Christ is our cornerstone, then there's some truths and some things that we receive in Christ. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, but I need your help. So come on, every shot number one. Verse one is this. In Christ, we have a new identity. In Christ, we have a new identity. And this is an ongoing theme throughout Ephesians. And we're going to touch on it multiple times throughout this, this series. All right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints. Titus 3, 3 through 7, highlights this and takes it to an even deeper level when it says this. For we too were once foolish. Come on, somebody disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures. You ever been there before? Living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared in Jesus, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that, 
that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. What an awesome piece of scripture. In other words, we've been changed. But what was that agent of change? Well, he uses this big bible word in there, regeneration. Ever shout regeneration? regeneration? Big, big word, all right? But really, this is what regeneration means. The washing away of shame. I love that. Now, I'm not going to have you lift your hands or anything like that, but I would venture to say that many of us, if not most of us, at one point or another in our life or currently, have allowed our identity to be built not on the cornerstone Jesus, but on the cornerstone of shame. Why? Because shame is a natural byproduct of guilt. Shame is a natural byproduct of sin. Shame is a natural byproduct of brokenness, which we've all participated in. That's why the Bible says that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. So the default for many of us is shame. And it's interesting what happens when we start to build our lives around shame, isn't it? We start to walk with our heads down and our shoulders low. And we start to believe lies like there is no purpose and there is no thing in front of me. And I'm just kind of occupying space and wasting space. But Paul says that in the working of regeneration, through the grace of God, through this agent of change, as our shame is wiped away, we can hold our head up, we can hold our shoulders back, and we can realize that I've got a purpose, a plan, a reason, and a rhyme in Christ. He's my cornerstone. Shame is no longer my cornerstone. This is important. And listen, the cure-all for shame is regeneration. Regeneration is not a self-improvement program, nor is it a clean-up campaign for our sinful natures. Regeneration is nothing less than the impartation of new life. Impartation being a word that means the, the, the putting in of, the breathing in of new life. All right? Regeneration is the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. That literally makes each believer, each person, a new person. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 is going to say this. We'll talk about this piece of scripture as we get there in this series. It says, this, put on the new self created after the likeness of God. I love that. Put on the new self. This week, on Friday, I had the distinct opportunity of taking my daughter to her first dance. And I loved it. It was awesome, right? Because I want her to know this is the only dance that she will be at till 35. And so, <laughs> got to take her to one. And so we were, um, I was running around town and in between meetings and everything, like that, Erica called me and she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm going to pick up a corsage. And she's like, a corsage? And I was like, yeah. So I had some like tricks in my pocket. And so I got my daughter her first corsage and, and got to put that on her wrist and everything like that. Because once again, I just wanted to know who's the man. And so, um, <laughs> and so we're going and, and uh, I get home and I'm kind of rushing because I was, I was behind um, from a meeting. And, and so I come blazing into the house and I put the corsage in the refrigerator and I ran off to the room and Shiloh, as she's like kind of walking up the stairs, she looked beautiful. She had this golden dress on by, like she's wearing it today actually. Um, and so yeah, she wanted, she's like, can I wear my dress to church? I was like, sure, awesome. And so she's, uh, she's wearing that today, but she came out and I was like, oh Shiloh, as I'm running to the bedroom, I'm like, you look so beautiful. And then I ran off to the bedroom and uh, I put my suit on and then I came out. And as I came out, she goes, ooh, dad, you're so handsome. And I was like, yes, I am. <laughs> right? And so because I, ha I had the suit on, she wasn't expecting me to, to, to put the suit on. She's like, Dad, you look so handsome. And come on, all the men in the house, you know what I'm talking about. There is something that happens in you when you put a new suit or a tux on. Come on, can I get a witness in this place? You, you become 007. 
I don't know what it is, but the minute that coat comes on, you're like, bam! And now you've got this swagger, and you're just like, oh, come on, let's do this. And so that's how I'm walking around the house, and my daughter thinks I'm handsome. My wife is like, oh, boy. Like, she was. <laughs> this is what Paul's saying. Is you got to put something new on, and it's new life. And new life in Christ gives you a different identity. It changes your personality. It changes your idea of who you are and where you were walking slumped, when you were walking around rejected, when you walk around like you don't know who you are and what you are and what God has for you, when you put on new life in Christ, when you understand that in Christ there's a new identity, all of a sudden there's like this holy swagger that comes upon you and you realize, wait a second, I'm a child of God. I'm a son and a daughter of God. He has something for me, so I'm going to walk in it. I'm going to walk in it. And this is important because when sin comes back around to try to entangle you with something, it says, uh-uh, I don't want to get my new suit dirty. You know what I'm talking about? Like you keep it, like everything is like away from, like when you have that new suit, that tuck suit on, like white. You never eat pasta when you're wearing a white shirt. I'm talking about, I was with Seth. He got white all over, or stuff all over his shirt. He was wearing white. I'm like, it's a magnet. And that's funny. Because every time we put on something new in Christ, isn't it like the enemy just comes at you like a freight train? And so we got to go, man, I know, I put on something new. And then having something new, it makes you aware of everything that's going on around you. When my identity is in Christ, it makes me aware of certain things. And I, wait, wait a second, I want to walk differently. My identity is in Christ. The theologian Louis Burkhoff wrote this, Regeneration consists in the implanting of the principle of the new spiritual life in man. And a radical change of the governing disposition of the soul, which under the influence of the Holy Spirit gives birth to a life that moves Godward in direction. In principle, this change affects the whole man, the intellect, the will, the feelings, and the emotions. It's beautiful. In other words, regeneration is the agent of change in our lives. And it is found in the expansive space of God's grace. We don't go looking for it, right? Some would be like, well, where's this regeneration at? Like, is it out in the lobby? Do I get it if I turn in a connect card? No. <laughs> it's in Christ, our cornerstone. You don't do anything because you're not the cornerstone. It's in Christ. It's him. I just let him be him in me. And me changes into he that is greater than what's in the world. He's in me. That's the system. That's how it affects us. You don't need to do anything. He just affects you. Just affects you. So here's some facts that we need to understand about our identity. When it's in Christ, you've got to understand some things. Fact one, you are not the sum total of what you are not. Did you hear that today? You are not the sum total of what you are not. Not. So many times we live in such a way that we allow our shortcomings, our lack, the areas of weakness in our life to shape and form our identity. Have you ever realized that before? We look at everything that we're not to tell us what we are. And that's just backwards. That's just funky. We got to allow our cornerstone, our identity in Christ to be the governing policy on our identity. 
This is who I am in Christ. I am a son. I am a daughter. I am chosen. I am royal. I am an heir. No weapon formed against me will prosper. He who is for me is greater than he who is in the world. All of these things that we read in scripture, that is my identity. I am not the sum total of what I am not because I lack in a lot of areas. I lack in a lot of areas, and many of you do too. Just good news for today. What did you learn at church? I lack in areas. <laughs> but we do, let's just be honest. We lack in areas. And it's funny that many of us will build our identity on the areas that we lack in. And then we get on the Instagram. <laughs> the Instagram. <laughs> we get on the Facebook. We get on the Snapchat, right? We get on the Twitter, right? Whatever other things that are out there. And we begin the process of comparing our lives to others and once again building an identity based upon what we are not and what others are. Man, it's dangerous, isn't it? And this is what I, wanna, I want us to understand this morning. Jesus did not judge us upon what we are not. Rather, he saved us from it. And therefore, we do not have the right to judge others or ourselves based upon what we are not. But we get good at doing that, don't we? Or quickly point out all the stuff that's happening. But what we need to understand is that you are not the sum total. People are not the sum total of what you're not. This church is going to be a Jesus cornerstone church. And that means anybody and everybody is allowed to walk in these doors. And we don't point out what's wrong. We point them to Jesus. Just like I don't need what's wrong with me pointed out to me. I need myself pointed to Jesus because there is a lot wrong with me. And that, we struggle with some of that. So I like four of us are clapping. <laughs> it's like, oh, wait, I don't know about that. Because they're reading my Bible. Like, oh, I got I to gotta tell people. I got to tell people what's wrong with them. No, you don't. That's not in the Bible. Mm-mm. No. We got to tell people about Jesus. Jesus then confronts what's wrong with us. We were not messengers of bad news. <laughs> we were messengers of good news. I didn't preach on this in the first service, but there you go. So, <laughs> fact one, you are not the sum total of what you are not, all right? That's why 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, therefore I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Not the sum total of what I am not. Fact two, what your past was does not have to define what your future will be. And too often our self-image and our identity rest solely on the evaluation of our past behavior, circumstance, or experience. And then we say things like this, I'll always be that way. What do you mean you'll always be that way? You don't always need to be that way. I'll always struggle with this. No, you don't always have to struggle with this. Man, I'm always going to face this, this thing. Man, it's just the way that it is. It's not just the way that it is. Because Jesus changed the way. That's the cool part. We think this is just the way that it is. And Jesus said, no, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the way that it is. If you would just follow me, come after me, allow me to be your cornerstone, let's build your life off of me. It changes everything. What your past was does not have to define what your future will be. All right? Fact three. We are not what was done to us. And some of us have allowed the hurts and the pains and the vile 
wrong and detestable actions brought against our life to define who we are. And Jesus says, no, I see all that stuff and you are not that. You are not that. And I know for some of us that touches such a hard place in our hearts and in our lives. The statistics would tell us just with the size of church that we have, the overwhelming amount of people who have had their life hurt and burdened and broken by certain actions in their life, the the statistics are staggering. I want you to know that that is not who you are. Christ has made you for a greater purpose. He's designed you for a greater purpose. And so we are not what was done to us. So a new identity in Christ. In Christ we have a new identity and we are called to walk in these things. Everybody shot number two. The second thing that Paul teaches us as Christ is our cornerstone is that in Christ we have a new family. Come on somebody, we got a new family. Everybody look around, this is your family. Some of you are like, nope, I'm not looking. Nah, i looking. Nope, just going to keep looking down on my feet. <laughs> in Christ we have a new family. That doesn't mean he gets rid of like our biological families. That's what we're saying. But here, there, there's a truth in this. Although some of you are like, well. <laughs> Ephesians 2.19 continues on and says, we are members of God's household. I love that idea. It's a household, right? I think there's something important to realize about a household. How many of you know this truth about our own households? Our households are not perfect, yeah. right? If God's house is a household, I want to give us this distinct truth to move forward on. The church will never be perfect. And if you're looking for perfection in the church, you are in the wrong place. It's a household. It's meant to be lived in. It's meant to have crazy happening. It's meant for our lives to be broken and hurting and marred and so that we can all come together in a household, take care of each other. That's the point of a household. My household's not perfect at all. Yesterday was like prime example of how our household works. It's been a long week. We're both tired. We got to dinner time. So our kids are asking, like, hey, what's for dinner? And mom or dad are just kind of zoned out, and we're trying to figure out, like, what's for dinner? And there's not really anything in the house but, like, chocolate eggs from Easter and copious amounts of bread products. And we're just like, that's probably not the way to go. So what's for dinner? So Shiloh goes, hey, can I just have cereal for dinner? And quickly mom's like, no, you can't have cereal. And I was like, no, you already had cereal for lunch. (laughs) She's like, what? <laughs> Father of the year award. <laughs> and so we're trying to figure out dinner. But quickly, Erica, this was Erica's solve right here. She's like, no, you don't need cereal for dinner. How about we do eggs and rice? <laughs> I was like, wait, how is that better than cereal? <laughs> so Shiloh, Shiloh was like, eggs and rice? And I was like, well, technically, if we put it in a frying pan, it's fried rice. We're good to go. So we settled on, we settled on Indian food, which they didn't eat. She ate eggs and rice. <laughs> it was awesome. We got a sick baby in the house, and we've all been kind of dealing with stuff. Our house is not perfect. It's lived in. It's lived in. The funny thing is, is that we want to come into a church that's not lived in, that's perfect. But it's interesting that Paul would equate the church, he would equate us, as a household. A household. And it's so funny. Because there's some household things that happen. When you're a household, here's some, here's some more facts for you, just to write down to kind of keep you engaged. Family is the antidote to isolation. You ever noticed that before? Like parents in the house, have you ever noticed that your kids have no problem running into the bathroom when you're in there? At least in our house, it happens all the time. Right? You're like, can I just get a break? 
that's it. So we go to the bathroom for 35 minutes. <laughs> family is the antidote to isolation. In family, there is no such thing as isolation. There's no such thing as isolation. And I want to say this. If you have ever once felt isolated in this church, I am so sorry for that, and I apologize for that, and I will work harder to make sure that you do not feel isolated because that is the church's job. You're not to, to, be, to be isolated. This is why we do the three-minute meet and greet. Some of you are like, why do you do that devil-implanted thing known as the three-minute meet and greet? <laughs> I've literally had pastors ask, they're like, what, give me what, like, top, top three reasons people don't come back to your church. And I was like, three-minute meet and greet. It's true. And some of you are like, yeah, I was actually not going to come back after this. <laughs> people have a, we struggle with the three-minute meet and greet. Why? Well, because we define ourselves. Here we go. We define ourselves as introvert, extrovert. But Jesus said, I'm building a family, a household that's put together, that's knit together to do life with one another. And then Paul writes this really crazy portion of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 through 26, where he talks about how the church, God's people, is a body, a collective unit, where one piece of the body can't say to the other piece of the body, I don't need you. No one gets to say, I don't need you, and I don't want to be around you. None of you wake up in the morning and say, hey guys, let's just leave the arm alone for a few minutes. <laughs> need some alone time. Okay? No one gets like, like hey, we're going we're gonna to go slowly on putting our shoes on because big toe over here on the right, well, just needs some quiet time. <laughs> it's afraid of the socks this morning. <laughs> Are you guys getting the picture? So we say, hey, three minutes, family. So there's no isolation here. It's three minutes for you to get out and bug each other. Okay? Now, I value the introverts in the house. I do. And I know that for many of you, it's not that you don't want relationship. You're just introverted. I get that. And for the extroverts, like, I know that, like, you don't have to talk, but you just want to talk. <laughs> I get that. That's me, right? But here's the deal. When we understand that we're family... <laughs> That, that family is the antidote to isolation because listen to what Proverbs 18 verse 1 says. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks against all sound judgment. We haven't been called to live lives of isolation. Why am I going at this? Because if we are going to continue to build a healthy church as we move forward into the future, we cannot be a church that seeks isolation of itself in our individual seats. And I watch how this happens sometimes. Let me just like, we sit here. Bree turns her head and I'm like, nope. She really wants to talk to me. I don't want her to talk to me. I just want to come in, want to listen to the band, want to listen to the guy yell for a little bit, and then I want to leave with no one touching me. <laughs> and then she touches me. That's not family. That, that's not family. Family lets you cry together. Family gives you a big old gigantic hug. It's so good to see you. I wouldn't hug anybody else this way, though. <laughs> right? That's family. And the funny thing is, is that we want the church to be family at the collective same time if we want to be isolated. So there's like this weird, like, like come at me, bro. This doesn't work. 
right? This doesn't work. It only works with wrestling with five-year-olds. That's it. <laughs> We're called to be family. This is important for Utah. Because I believe that one of the spiritual climates of this state is the enemy's ever-present work at making us feel isolated. Doesn't matter your faith background, doesn't matter where you come from. He works to make us feel isolated. All right, number the fact, the second fact, there's a lot of facts in here. I've got like 19 points left to go, so. Fact two, family promotes accountability. Promotes accountability. When stuff's going off in your life, you've got somebody in there to go, hey, what's going on? All right, Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. So those are some of the facts about being family. So the first thing that we understand is that in Christ is our cornerstone. He gives us a new identity. But as well, as he's creating and giving us a new family. The third thing is this, every shot number three. In Christ we have greater security. In Christ we have greater security. I'm not going to have you show your hands or anything like that, but I would venture to guess that many of us have dealt with insecurity. I know I have many, many times. And I still deal with insecurity every now and then. But here's what I've come to learn and understand about Christ, that when my life is founded upon this cornerstone, my insecurity quickly vanishes. That's why Ephesians 2, 20 through 21, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone in him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This teaching is magnified by Jesus in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, when he says this, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew, and the pounded the house. Yet it did not collapse. It did not collapse. It did not collapse. It did not collapse. It did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. All right? But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, and pounded that house, and it collapsed. And then watch what he says. He qualifies it. He says it collapsed with a great crash. What we need to understand today is that when our life is built on this rock, the cornerstone, Jesus, he doesn't say that the rains are going to go away and the wind's not going to blow. He doesn't say that. He says the elements of the weather, they're going to come at you. Fears and frustrations and insecurity and the stuff of life, it's going to come at you. But you will not fall. And that is the truth, and that is the point of what he is writing. When God, when Christ Jesus is our cornerstone, I don't have to fall. I don't have to be pushed over by it all. I can stand on my foundation. And so in Christ, we have greater security. Can I talk to the ladies in the house today? All the ladies, no matter, married, single ladies, whoever you are. All the ladies in the house. You have to start to see yourself as a daughter of the king. And the only way that you do that is by making him your cornerstone. What I love about my wife, one of the many things that I love about my wife, she's not defined by our marriage. She's not defined by her role in our marriage. She's not defined by her role as a mom. She's not defined by her role in those things. She's defined first and foremost by one thing, her ability to be a daughter of the king before anything else. It's one of the great things that I respect about my wife. And that's how she remains strong. That's how she does life the way that she does is because her security, her security is not in our marriage. Her security is not in her 
things that she does. Her security is not in our ministry. Her security is in any one of those things. There's one thing that I know about my wife, and I've known her for 20 plus years. She is secure in Christ, more so in many ways than I am. Christ is our cornerstone, gives us security. Men, to be men, we find security in Christ, not macho behavior in the world. I think the evangelical church has messed it up so many times for us. The world has messed it up so many times for us because we simply say to be a man, you just got to burp and scratch and bleh. in the name of Jesus. What does that even mean? That's not true masculinity. <laughs> That's not true masculinity. Masculinity is this. I will not build my life upon me as a man. I will build my life upon the cornerstone, Jesus. In a submitted prostate position before God. I bow to him. This is necessary to understand because when we get into the backside of Ephesians, Paul's going to encourage us as how we do our marriages. So if you think we're getting into like a bunch of just theological stuff, there's going to be some stuff that, that Paul talks about in our marriages. We need to understand this cornerstone issue if we are to be husbands and wives rightly. And if you're single, you need to be here for that one because it's important. In Christ, we have greater security. Number four, the last one is this. In Christ, we have greater purpose. Ephesians 2.22, in him you are also being built together. Why? Watch what it says, for God's dwelling in the spirit. Here's what we need to understand this morning. Our purpose is not in what we do. Our purpose is in who we are. John 15, 16 says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. And so many of us are allowing our lives and our purpose to be defined by what I do, my action items for the day. Stop. The things that you do every day in life, that's just a part of your life. But who you are, your purpose is who you are in Christ every single day. And this is a prayer that I pray a lot. God, if you ever so choose to take this away from me, to take leadership away from me, to take preaching away from me, to take the things that I do away from me, I pray that I know you well enough that you are the cornerstone of my life, that when everything else fades away, I still know that I have a purpose, and my purpose is found in being in you. Not in my career, not in my finances, not in my stuff and my things, not in my ministry, not in my this, not in my that. You fill in the blanks. In Christ, we have a greater purpose, and that is to be in Him. I did not choose Him. He chose me. And we'll spend a good portion of time talking about this throughout the series. just want to kind of introduce it to us today, because the issue of purpose is so big and broad. But here's the truth today as we close, that no matter how you came in here today, God has a bigger purpose for your life than you may realize. 
He has a future. He has a hope. He has a reason. He has a call upon your life. You are not just taking up space, but rather are called to impact the space that you occupy. And no amount of sin, brokenness, despair, hopelessness, and misdirection can shake what God has prepared for you. Because you have a new identity in Christ, a family to belong to in Christ, a security that is unshakable in Christ, and a purpose to walk in in Christ. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody shout it.